Attention Hafu fans. So, would you like to see your likeness featured in the upcoming Hafu Book 2? Well, here's what you got to do. Go online right now and purchase your copy of Hafu Graphic Novel for only $9.99 plus shipping and handling at showmecomics.com slash Hafu. And on December 20th, at our Facebook page for Hoffa Graphic Novel, we'll be holding a trivia contest. So if you have purchased a copy at a comic book convention or online, or if you haven't yet, get your copy now. Read it up. Memorize all the answers. And on December 20th, come take our trivia challenge. On Christmas Day, we will be holding a drawing. The first place winner will actually receive a grand prize award of having their likeness drawn into the second Hafu book, and they'll get their own copy of the book for free, autographed by the creators. For second place, we will actually have three runner-up winners that get a free copy of the book, autographed by the creators with a sketch inside, and for five third-place winners, they will receive a sketch done by Hafu artist Sam Richardson. So if you haven't bought your copy yet, go to showmecomics.com slash Hafu now, brush up on your trivia, memorize everything in that book, and be ready to take our contest on December 20th. This episode of the Show Me Comic Cast is brought to you by Audible.com. Visit www.audibletrial.com slash showmecomics to start your free 30-day trial and download your free audio book. Season 1, episode 16! I said 16! You're listening to the Show Me Comic Cast. I'm Tim Pickerel, digital media producer for Show Me Comics. And I'm Jordan Taylor. I write marvelous fiction in the form of comic book scripts, and I also write blogs on the showmecomics.com website that you will marvel at. And I'm Sam Richardson, and I am not Alex Ross. But despite that, I still try to do my best at art. You don't have to paint yourself with that brush. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I was painting with this brush. Exactly. that came out way wrong. Well, that's kind of an introduction to what we're going to talk about today, because this is another episode of the ongoing Show Me Comic Cast series called Analyzing a Great Work. Yes, we are going to get very intellectual philosophical, and downright hoity-toity Wow! over the topic of what we consider a great work. And uh, we mentioned Alex Ross, and that kind of tipped our hat. But, Sam, I, I actually reached out to you via text message or SMS, these newfangled technologies that we can use to communicate with each other. And I said, hey, last night we did, or last time we did the Dark Knight Returns for analyzing a great work. What should we use uh, that could help our audience via our dissection for this time around. You said Marvels. And I'm like, K. <laughs> and you basically, what is Marvels? Go ahead and give us a basic rundown. Yeah. Well, the backup, it actually wasn't through text message. It was uh, through two cans and a string. <laughs> <laughs> Don't date us. I have told you time and time again not to date us. And I, I couldn't tell what he was talking about at first. Um, yeah, Marvels. Uh, I thought this would be a good one because it's uh, kind of a different direction than The Dark Knight Returns. You know, we talked about how uh, DKR was gritty and dark, and it was different than what comic books were like at the time. And uh, I-, I thought Marvels would be a cool path to go because it's it's quite the opposite direction. It's it's pretty colorful, and it's you know it's Marvel comics, and it's. Uh, it's kind of an overall view of the Marvel Comics history of the uh, the characters and how they came to be, and you're seeing it through the eyes of a uh, 
think he was a photojournalist. Yep. Yeah, before we get too much into what it is, go ahead and hand me the copy of it right now because I would like to do one thing that we we identified during our last Analyzing Your Great Works as being a problem was the fact that some of these great you know, comics that are lauded as being touchstones or milestones or whatever you want to call them in the comics industry, uh, that there are unsung heroes that contributed a great deal but never get any credit. So one thing I would like to do first is read the credits page of Marvel's, which was what, like a four-part series? Yeah, Correct. it was a, a four-issue miniseries. So it was a four-issue miniseries, which now miniseries doesn't mean anything because you just buy the trade, and right. it's a single volume. So it was written by Kurt Busiek. Am I saying that right? Yep. And it was, the artist was Alex Ross. You guys probably haven't heard of him, but <laughs> pretty good dude. No, but I do know Ross Abernathy. <laughs> <laughs> I do know Bob Ross, who is also a great painter. Uh, but here comes to the point where these people deserve a lot of credit. The letterer, Richard Starkings. Again, probably you're going to be like, oh, yeah, Richard Starkings. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that guy's awesome. awesome letterer. <laughs> the best in the industry. I got every copy of every comic ever Ever letter by Richard Starkings As soon as I saw time. his first letters, I knew this is what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah, dude, I once got his autograph, and it was perfect. I once <laughs> got his autograph, but it was just uh, pictographs, which is weird because he's a letterer. So it totally threw me off. But in all seriousness, the reason we're saying that is because he contributed. The reason we're remembering it is because of his work. If he was a bad letterer, we wouldn't remember this work as well as we do. So Richard Starkings, a big... Shout out to you. It says logo design, Joe Kaufman. So designing some of the, you know, external, if you want to think about that artwork. Edited by Marcus McLaurin. And the cover artist was some dude who totally tried to capitalize on the fame of the previous artist by calling himself Alex Ross. (laughs) So tried to tried to kind of ride in on the coattails of that other guy that did the interiors, but so anyway, there you have it. Those are the credits. So now that we've got that kind of established, go ahead, Sam, with what you were saying about what's the basic premise. If in a bloody big nutshell, you can put it into a paragraph or so. Right. Well, you basically, you get the history of the Marvel universe, universe and you're seeing it through the eyes of like an everyday, you know, uh, citizen through the eyes of a human being. Um, and what I thought was cool about the story was uh, they tried to keep the continuity. Uh, I don't know if real time is the best way to put that, but uh, even though I think the, I think the book was published back in the, like the mid to late 1990s, uh, they kind of go back and they tell the story as if it was happening when the books were published back in like the 60s well, and 70s. What's interesting is I recently listened via audible.com the you know untold story of Marvel Comics and they go back to some of the first characters that Marvel Comics ever had and then they chronicle, you know, through the bullpen and all the people in the office how different characters got created. And when you look back through this Marvel's comic, it goes all the way back right, to those first couple characters. And then this person who we're supposed to see through their viewpoint, this uh, photojournalist, 
we see that same kind of chronology. So what you're trying to say is they sparsed it out in the same way. So the the mutants appeared in the 60s-ish right. time frame. The original, you know, people with powers appeared in the 30s, 40s time frame. And right. It, it so wasn't, on and so forth. So right. it's not concrete, but they tried to follow the chronology of Marvel Comics, the real entity. Right. It, it wasn't like now where you, like, the, the ultimate version or whatever. I think Marvel's calling it Marvel now or, you know, a DC with the new 52 where they're like, here's yeah. the creation of our universe if it happened today. You know, like they well, it, stuck to the original timelines. I thought that was cool about it. Reminds me of when the Spider-Man movie came out and I was like, dude, this is a pretty good story. Can you show me a Spider-Man, you know, like a Spider-Man origin comic? And you're right. like, here you go, Ultimate Spider-Man or whatever. And I'm like, okay, and it fit right along with the movie. Was that Ultimate Spider-Man? Yeah, they they based a lot of the movies off of the uh, you know the the present day. Yeah, Marvel and bit. it fit right along in the the style of clothing and everything yeah. you would see. I was like, oh, okay, this is no big deal. But if you had showed me the actual Amazing Spider-Man from back in the '60s or whatever, those characters would have been totally different. Well, when you look at Marvels, the Spider-Man in the in this miniseries Marvels actually does come out at the time of original character creation. Right, right. So that's the whole idea. Even though there's a little bit of forgiveness in him getting older or not, right. it still kind of follows that trajectory. Yeah, and uh, something I thought was really cool that, that Alex Ross did with reference and uh, that Kurt Busiek did is, you know, what the writing was... They basically took like a lot of uh, a lot of the major points that were going on in Marvel Comics at the time, and and used that into the story, like uh, uh, like the stuff in Spider Man with the death of Gwen Stacy and Fantastic Four with Galactus and the Silver Surfer. And wait uh, a minute, Gwen Stacy died. Spoiler alert! Yeah, I'm pretty can sure at this was, point anybody can out you there at that's... least give me a heads up. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, like everything that you see in that book comes out of something that was an actual storyline in whatever your hero's book that it was, and they put it all into this you know one flowing story with this uh, Phil Sheldon character. But I thought it was neat how a lot of the a lot of the artwork that you see in that uh, Alex Ross was taking that directly from certain panels of certain comics. Like there's oh, certain scenes with Galactus. Neat. I did not and, know that. Uh, and with the Spider-Man stuff and and uh, some of the X-Men things that. Like he literally, like you could go back and look at the original comics at the panels and see like where he took that. And I mean, like composition, everything's the exact same. It's just that he painted it to make it look photorealistic. I think you're actually getting kind of ahead of the the foundation that I want to lay for our audiences to establishing why this was such a great work, especially artistically. And here's the first thing I want to do. I want to split this conversation into two halves. The first half, I want to talk solely about why this was a great work from an art perspective. And then the second half, I want to talk all about the story and mm -hmm. how that fit into Marvel history and so, and stuff like that. Not saying in the art half you have to avoid Marvel history, but I would like to split the show into the first half being art and the second half being the story or writing. So let's go ahead and dive into that first half being art. So... I guess the first place we have to start is Alex Ross. Who the heck is this guy? Why are we saying 
Alex Ross and joking about the covers page is, oh, Alex Ross and this guy who wants to ride on the coattails of Alex Ross right. named Alex Ross. Why, why is that so funny? I mean, uh, because he's obviously super famous in the comics world. But. Right. Okay. So when Marvels came out, Alex Ross was uh, really an unknown guy. He had done a couple of covers, I think, for Marvel and DC, but uh, nothing very prominent. Uh, Marvels is kind of what put Alex Ross on the map, and something you got to realize is that in the at that time, in like the mid mid nineties, you didn't have a lot of you know Photoshop computer generated art. Everything you got right, was nice. basic pencil and ink. Uh, everybody was a McFarlane or Jim Lee clone or whatever, but you didn't have photorealistic artwork, and that's super important. I th- for an audience of today to understand is the fact that. You know, today, you can almost just put some scribbles down, and by the time it's passed through three or four hands, you know, the digital inker, the digital colors, the digital this and digital that, and it it looks completely different. Like, I look at some of, uh, I want to say Adam Hughes. Oh, yeah. All right, so Adam Hughes art, there's almost no borders, like inking borders on anything. Right. Because a lot of it is very... You'll look at the shading, and you're like, obviously, that was done digital. Right. He, he's well-known for doing women, you know, and he, they've always got these very voluptuous, sensuous lips that have these perfect shading to make them look like the ideal lips that you would want on a woman, and nobody drew that. That was colored. You know, all all the drawing was was the exterior. Right. And, and then it, when, on the finished product, you can't even see the exterior yeah. lines. All you can see is the, the colored part. Right. So. Uh, what I'm trying to say is realizing if you take all those tools away, the difference that an Alex Ross brought to the table back then. Big time. I mean, nowadays, it, not only because of you know, computer-generated artwork, you know, fans can pick up a book of anything these days and see their favorite character look you know, realistic. But you've also got, I mean, just the movies. I mean, we've already now seen Thor, Spider-Man, Batman, Superman, Fantastic Four. Everybody's been done in some type of movie. So you, you already are used, you, you've seen your character, what they would be like, in as close to real life as possible. Right. When Marvels came out, you didn't really have that. You know, it was... It, no, it was, it, it, I remember, um, and I'm a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fan, right? Right. So I remember thinking back then, it's like, man... I love this cartoon. What would it look like to see this realistically? Right. You know, and you look and you see they did a really good job on the costumes. But I'm like, imagine if Leonardo actually sliced his sword through some robot or alien or something like that. We didn't get to see that in the movies. So I still had that wanting, right. you know, like what would a real full-blown, you know, not-for-a-child Ninja Turtles fight look like? Right. I never got to saw it. Or, <laughs> I never got to... Do, 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 do. I, never got to <laughs> I never got to see it. But when you look at what Alex Ross did in his art style, he gave you that extra-universe glimpse of, hey, if they were going to make a movie off this... It would look pretty darn close right, exactly. to what I'm doing. And I guess from an art standpoint, because this is an audio medium, we can't show you pictures of, this is a Spider-Man drawn by Steve Ditko, and this is a Spider-Man painted by Alex Ross. Can you try to explain the difference to our audience? 
Well, yeah, I mean, you get a different dimension with painting. Uh, well, explain the fact that he did paint. I mean, first of all, if they don't know who Alex right. Ross is or what he did. Yeah, that's... You know, we talk about getting to see your favorite character, what they look like in real life, and why you didn't really have that opportunity at that point of, you know, comics history is everybody was doing traditional pen and ink. You know, you just laid on your pencils, ink over it with, you know, black ink, and there you go with your little 2D drawing. And we're Everything talking about flat. And we're talking about, like, three people doing it, right? Right. As opposed right. to Alex Ross, I'm guessing it did it all. Right. Well, here's the other thing is because he was a painter and why you didn't see this a whole lot at that time, I mean, you had uh, Boris Vallejo and Joe Jesco. Those guys oh, were... love Boris Vallejo. And they were very <laughs> popular with their paintings. And, uh, in fact, right before Marvel Re- came out, there was a trading card line that Marvel did called Marvel Masterpiece. And the I'm reason that it was sure so popular... Sh- yeah, I'm pretty sure you showed me that in study hall. Yeah, I think I did. Grade. And why it was so popular was it was painted. Joe Jusco went on and painted, like, every character in the Marvel Universe. And people ate it up because they got to see kind of an idea of what their favorite character would look like in real life. But... Painters take a long time to do their work. So when we're talking about Boris and these guys, oh, yeah. yeah, they did awesome covers, but you rarely got artwork out of them because it takes so long to do one piece. And exactly. you definitely weren't going to see an entire you know, comic book done by them. You're going to see one cover maybe every few years. And that's why you know, whenever uh, Alex Ross came along... I mean, here's a guy that's painting stuff that looks photorealistic, but he does it fast, and he's doing the entire book. He's doing the, all the sequential art and everything. Now, and did he do a book before Marvel's? Uh, like an actual, like, let's say 20 pages or 22 pages. Yeah, I, I think he did like a... He had to have. I'm sure you guys have heard of Heavy Metal Magazine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My favorite. Yeah. <laughs> I know Alex Ross had done some stuff like that in the past, but I mean, on a mainstream comic book that everybody had access to, no. This was his first thing, and this is what, I mean, when it came out, though, you know, boom, it just made Alex Ross a superstar. But, uh, I mean, that's the thing, though, with painting is at the time, you didn't have Photoshop. You didn't have all this computer technology that allowed you to uh, bring on, like, a, a 3D rendering in, in, you know, fast enough time that you could complete 30, 40 issues of a book. And so Alex Ross comes along, and he's just, you know, just churning these paintings out, and they looked awesome, and... uh even if it wouldn't have been a cool story, even if it was you know just the most horrible writing, I think it would have sold just off the art alone. Well, here it reminds me of when you're in elementary school, right? And you're reading, you're graduating from picture books to chapter books. Okay, you guys remember that, right? Mm-hmm. All right, so you're graduating from that, and you see uh, the purpose of a cover of a book is to sell you on the book. So they're always going to have really good artwork on the cover. Uh, but when you're a kid, I remember when you're graduating from picture books to chapter books, you'd have a really interesting cover and usually painted. And then you would start reading. And in the middle of the book, they would throw you like four or five pictures. Right. And it and underneath, like half the pictures would be scenes that you already read. And the other half of the pictures would be scenes that you haven't read yet. Right. But they would be line drawings. Yeah. They were just you know, oh, yeah. basic, the most basic outline with pencils and inks that you've ever seen. And you're like, oh, okay. I became immersed through the cover because it was full color. It was painted, blah, 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 blah. Then I read all this text and I had a buy-in. And then in the middle of the book, it gave me a little bit of a visual right. boost or a visual stimulant to see some of the scenes drawn out. But imagine if you had hit the middle of that chapter book 
and you went from black and white text to full color every all these scenes were detail painted and you're like right whoa every scene is as good as the cover you know the mouse and the motorcycle is just yeah. as vivid in the middle of the book as he was on the cover that's what Alex Ross did was he brought the cover to the inside of the book and not just on one page, but page right, after definitely, page definitely. after page after page. And so when you've got something that realistic, what you're able to do emotion wise with storytelling, you know, is definitely above and beyond what you do with normal comic books. And I think because you mentioned this as a book that I should read and I went and read it and I took notes and analyzed it critically which is what we recommend to our audiences. When you're analyzing a great work, put on your critical spectacles and look at it. And here's the first thing art-wise that I realized, and I kind of want you guys to comment on this. The first thing was is the fact that it's a period piece. You mentioned that Kurt Busiek wrote it to correspond with the history of Marvel, but the fact that you look at these panels and they're really packed with Detail. I right. mean, you look at the coffee machine oh, yeah. that's in the background of a 1940s panel, and it is a 1940s coffee machine. Yeah. It's, you know, the old carafe with the lip on it that has an electric wire coming out right. and a dial. Yeah. You know, well, it's, and it's an important because you don't have to have that little dialogue box that says, ooh, you know, New York, 1942. You look at it and can tell. Because of those little details. But that's pretty amazing to to look at the refrigerator and notice that it's curved on top instead of square. To us, that would be a mundane detail. Mm -hmm. But as we learned from Office Space, there are no mundane details. (laughs) So, I mean, how do you think Alex Ross achieved that? Did he use heavy reference? Was he just a detail-oriented guy? I mean, what can our audience learn from that? Yeah, I was going to tell a story, you know, from the art perspective and why that book just, you know, as a a young kid, that just, you know, sucked me right in. Uh, I remember whenever I was little and I would draw, I used to think that if I looked at something, I was cheating. I used to think, like, no, if I, I know looked at my own hand or Absolutely, if I looked at a picture, yeah. I was like, oh, man, if I copy that, I'm cheating. Because I used to hate it whenever I would see kids draw something and, and people, like, they'd brag about it. But then i see that they traced it. Or one of my favorites, back in middle school, there was a kid, and I can't remember his name, but I remember all these kids talked about this uh, X-Men picture that he drew. They were right. like, oh, it was so great. And I looked at it and I was like, did he just straight up trace the cover to X-Men number one? And I was angry because mine was like, you know, this full-on thing that I did freehand. I didn't trace it. And I'm like... Like you could tell from looking at it where he actually traced the lines to this. And all these people were talking about what a good artist he was. And I'm like, that was horrible. He traced it. That's the worst you can do. Right. But to me, even if he didn't trace it, even if he would have just looked at it, I'm like, that's totally cheating. Oh, I know. So you I mean. didn't understand at the time that reference was like a good thing. And uh, when the when the Marvel uh, Collected Edition came out and I bought it, you have like the extras to it. And it actually shows like where Alex Ross had his wife dress up is some of the female characters and his father was actually the one I think that uh, that he modeled the the Phil Sheldon character and he actually built his own Galactus helmet and would take photos from certain angles to see right. the light coming down I'm like I'm looking through this and I'm like wait a minute you mean he used reference for everything and that's when I started <laughs> to realize maybe that's okay well I, I remember the same thing like uh, so my brother was kind of into art when I was young and you know he was a lot older than me like nine years older 
And I remember I'm a little kid and I walk into his room and I see this thing on his desk. And it's this, it looked like an action figure, but it had no facial features. It was just a wooden head. Oh, yeah. uh, With wooden sections of the torso and then these stupid floppy feet that had no toes and these stupid floppy hands that had no fingers. I'm like, as a little kid who plays with Ninja Turtles and G.I. Joes and stuff, I'm thinking, this is the lamest action figure I've ever seen. And I had no idea... That's a posable figure. Yes, yes, I get Just <laughs> to give you light and shadow on limbs to say, hey, if I'm standing here like I have to go pee-pee with my legs crossed, the shadows are falling across my legs different than if I'm throwing a high kick at your head. Right. The, the shadows are going to go on my mm-hmm. thigh and my calf mm-hmm. totally different. And I didn't know that, but like you said, that's, that tool is purely for reference. Oh, and saying you should use reference in everything you do. Yeah, and I learned that later on. I remember uh, in college, actually, even though I thought the instructor was an idiot. Blake. Yes. He, he talked a lot about using reference in everything that you draw. And I hope he's I not listening to this podcast. I hope he is because he can go. Well, I can't say <laughs> he it because he's a family exalt show. himself. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, I remember from that class on, and then even like in things that I would read, they would talk about how much you should use reference in real life. And one of the reasons is because our brains don't think in reality. If I told someone right now, like, hey, draw a shoe, you know, they would draw what their brain thinks a shoe looks like. And then if I told them to actually look at a shoe and draw it how they see it, and you compare the two, they're going to look very different. For example, the mind thinks that the, you know, the criss- crisscross patterns of the laces are straight. They think that the bow is a perfect circle. They right. draw the shoe to look a certain way, and then when you look at a real shoe, you're like, "Well, no, actually, the crisscross isn't you know straight at all. Yeah, Nothing's actually left, symmetrical. The left oval of the bow is larger than the right oval and, of the and bow based why. on who tied it. Your brain doesn't understand things like foreshortening. You know, like in comic books to get dynamic poses, and I, I try to use this a lot in in Hafu. If I draw a picture of a of a fist coming straight at you, okay. For the brain to pick up and understand what a fist looks like straight on, it's almost impossible. A brain understands what a fist looks like and then an arm has a certain distance. But unless you actually see that image in front of you, it's almost impossible for your brain to understand how to render that. So the more you have reference available, the less you have to to depend on just your brain's own reference and the more realistic it's going to look. Well, you know, this goes into another thing of a podcast that we had previously where we were talking about emotions on faces and conveying emotions and the fact that an artist has to be an actor. And we asked you, how do you do that? And you said, I take pictures of my face. Yeah. And why do you take pictures? Instead of just... Feeling your face like, I'm going to frown. Right. Yeah, I feel the corners of my mouth pulling down, and now I can draw that. No, now you can't draw that. Yeah. Instead, you need other stimuli, Oh, right? a perfect example is just, I uh, look at a kindergartner, a first grader's artwork. You know, when they draw somebody happy, it's a big face with, you know, big eyes, and then the smile is a big you, because to them, that's what a smile looks like. And if they're if they're unhappy, it's a big upside-down you, and there's maybe a tear, co- because to that, in their brain, their frame of reference is happy, is hmm, this big well, smile and sad. symbolism, is, too. They're exactly. like, if I put an upside-down you, this will convey to the people that are looking at it Be- that it's a frown. Exactly, because know? without training, that's our, that's all our brain understands is symbols. they're almost drawing letters at that mm-hmm. point. This yeah. is the letter that right. means frown. But that's how know? our brain works is we tend to our references. Well, what is happy? Happy means a big smile on the face. 
well, it doesn't understand subtlety very much. So when when the average person that doesn't practice a lot, you know, just your average, hey, I can't draw a straight line. You tell them to draw happy or sad, and it's going to be the same thing. It's still going to be the big smiley face with the big U or a frown with the oh, big absolutely. U because their brain hasn't been trained or conditioned yet to understand some of the subtleties. And even if you've been doing it for a long time, it's still hard to get perfect because your brain is still constantly wanting to think, oh, happy? That's a big smile <laughs> instead of looking at a picture of it. Well, it's like when I'm at work and I you know, send an email that says, hey, the job's complete. And then I put the little colon with the parentheses of the smiley face. I don't, I don't put someone who's subtly smirking right. with a number one <laughs> trophy in their hand. <laughs> but uh, we could probably, you know, wax intellectual about symbolism forever. Where I'd like to move the conversation from an artistic standpoint to analyze this great work is when I read it, I found that the realism went beyond the point of how it was drawn. So beyond that, I'm going to dress somebody in a Galactus helmet so I can see how the shadows fall on the right. cylinder coming out of the forehead instead of the rounded forehead. You know, that's different than he also made it realistic by what was drawn. Is what I noticed. Right. And, and what I mean by that is, like, his different characters, they would come out and they didn't have the deeply chiseled chest. Yeah. But yeah. they were muscular. They had the masculine jaw, but it wasn't a straight jut like you would see in a cartoon. It had the little chin and then the indent. Right. And then the, you know, kind of the more lax, like a normal person's. You know, I guess gobble, gobble, turkey part would hang, if that makes sense, you know. But when you put all that imagery together, you know, the big chest that's not necessarily cut and then the the strong jaw that's not a straight line. It's like, wow, that's like a that looks like a real man. It's like all of a sudden the leader of the Fantastic Four is a real man. The human torch is a. That guy could have really existed in time, so on and so forth. Right. If that makes sense, I mean, d- no, does that I make was sense actually thinking that earlier. Yeah, is that you didn't have? There weren't just these humongous, bulky Arnold Schwarzenegger stereotype, cliche superheroes. Because you brought up Boris Vallejo, and while I love Boris Vallejo, mm-hmm. he seems like he has, you know, athletes right, or right. bodybuilders pose yeah. for him. Whereas it seemed like Alex Ross had, hey, here's the guy before he got his powers. He would have looked like this, and he wouldn't have looked much different afterwards. Here he is, and that immersed me. It made me feel like it was more real. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, another thing I so like, how, story-wise. Well, before you tra- transition there... How can people do that? You know, or or what was his key to doing that? Well, like the body types, I think it was just you know, if if you're going to make a story seem like it's based in reality, you have to be real. I mean, it, one of the things I've always hated was Clark Kent Superman. It's like seriously, he puts off, he takes the glasses off, and all of a sudden you <laughs> don't know that it's him. Look at his build; he's enormous. Yeah. You know, it's like in the comic, uh, like in Marvels. Uh, when you get to like the Spider-Man part of the story, you see Peter Parker, and he is—he's just an average build kid. You see him, and he doesn't look any different than any you know twenty-year-old or whatever age right. he's supposed to be. 
And then when he's Spider-Man in the uniform, you get the same thing. You the, the uniform almost looks a little loose on him. He doesn't have humongous muscles bulging at the seams, and it makes it uh, more realistic that people would have no no idea to link the two together. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, and it's actually hilarious that you brought that up because when I read it, I was like, "Wow, this guy's like a George Reeves Superman." Yeah, <laughs> and even though Superman's not in the comic because it's it's a Marvel comic, not a DC comic, but I was like, this guy's like the George Reeves Superman. And for those of you who don't know, George Reeves is like the 1950s version of Superman. And he still had sewn-in muscles. But the sewn-in muscles were just for bulk. Right. So when you looked at him, he wasn't cut or anything. And then as soon as I had that thought, I was like, now look at the George Clooney Batman where he's got nipples and the freaking thing is like sliding into these huge divots and dimples in his abs and it's like that is retarded you know like why would anybody have their armor like that so even though the George Reeves Superman had fake muscles compared to 1980s 90s superheroes muscles they weren't fake at all right and that's what I felt like we got out of Alex Ross's right. paintings were the George Reeves Superman. Oh, yeah. Well, if you want a sense of realism, you have to give the reader something they can relate to. And the average reader is not going to relate to a bunch of muscle-bound athletes. Well, that's not their everyday life, you know. Their everyday life is just, you know, average-sized people. Sure, everybody's got that friend that's in decent shape or whatnot, but most of them don't walk around in gyms around a bunch of, you know, 300-pound behemoths. It's average-sized people. So if you had a bunch of 300-pound behemoths in the story, it just continues to take that reader and pull them further away from their reality, and it's going to be harder for them to make the story real. Absolutely. So are there any final thoughts on, you know, how to draw realistically like what do you want to lean towards and what do you want to avoid if you're trying to make something not necessarily realistic but at least connect yeah it's just subtle again it's about subtlety and reference you know don't uh don't draw from your mind's idea of what a superhero is because if you do it's going to be a humongous barrel chested guy with the crazy chin Use reference and not just a bunch of steroided out bodybuilders on the internet. You know, look at actual – I mean, if your character – we do like that. Yeah, so we love it. <laughs> but, I mean, if, if your character, you know, look at the powers that they have. If, if they're the Flash, if their character's power is that they can run super fast and that's it, why would you draw them with enormous 30-inch arms and, you know – 60 inch wide shoulders you know you'd want to look at sprinters look at olympic sprinters look at what they look like look at how lean they are look at how much their muscles actually stick out look at ufc fighters but yeah and all the let's flip that on its head if you're gonna draw the mafia don you know as a villain who has had people wait on him hand and foot for the last 10 years (laughs) that mafia don probably should not be ripped Right, <laughs> you know what I'm right. saying? He should probably have a beer belly because <laughs> like, he doesn't exert himself. I was going to say that the kingpin is a good example of that. But even <laughs> right. the kingpin, back in like no, the 80s. He's still, yeah, in the 80s, you would read the back of his trading card and it's like, the kingpin may appear to be overweight, but he actually has tough six-pack muscles under his coat. And it's like they still try to get across that he wasn't uh, fat. Art-wise was – all right, so you're using reference, let's say – so Sam talked about he Alex Ross would have his people pose for him in different costumes and things, and that's great. Now, I don't know on this next thing that I'm about to mention 
if the people actually posed like this or if Alex Ross imposed it through his art. But what I thought was great was the facial expressions and emotions of the people in the moment that were captured in the art. And if that was the job of the, we'll call them actors, if they're posing for a picture and they're actually acting like the moment, that was pretty good. And that was pretty good of Alex Ross to direct him saying, hey, guess what? You're running away from Galactus right now. Or you're running towards Galactus right now. Guess what? You're scared. And suddenly the person who's standing there in some foam rubber outfit is like, oh, you're not just capturing light and shadow. You're capturing emotion. Right. Let me go ahead and put myself in a mental place where I'm thinking, oh, my God, this giant thing is about to destroy me. But I have to react. And boom, it overcomes her face. And what I'd like to show you guys right now is the panel that really jumped out at me. And it was the expression on Reed Richards' face when they're running to actually fight Galactus. And he has this expression on his face like, I have to do this, but good lord, I wish I didn't have to do this. Do you guys, Tim, do you think maybe we can put this in the show notes? Oh, the, uh, the the panel I'm talking about. I don't see why not. Okay, so no, you're right. Though. I'm going to let you guys talk about that amongst yourselves because Tim, you're the you know you're a pretty big fan of this. You read it, and mm-hmm. Sam, you're the artist. So go ahead and talk about it amongst yourselves for a moment. Okay. Oh, definitely. I mean, when he's got the actors, it's it goes back to the whole drawing thing. If I sit here draw a picture of a smile, when people act, you get the same problem. Is that if I said. Uh, hey, Tim, uh, show me happy. You'd probably, again, go for a big grin or something that you probably don't do in real life. Because we don't act out our emotions when we're really feeling them. When we're happy or we're sad, we don't you know, purposely tell ourselves, ah, get a big grin or look like this. You just do it. Right. But when we're acting, your brain goes back to its reference of, oh, I'm going to act with a big smile. Like, And that's why a lot of actors and actresses don't make it is the overacting. Same thing whenever you're drawing, and it's up to Alex Ross with his artistic vision and and basically to play the role of movie director and say, okay, I don't want that much enthusiasm. I don't want that much happiness, or I don't want that much surprise or that much sadness. Let's tone it down a bit. Where if he didn't have that artistic vision or direction, he'd just paint whatever the hell the person's doing and go on with it. So at the end of the day, whether it's reference or not, he's the one that you know dictates how much of that emotion is being shown. So all respect to him for that. Yeah, I uh, Jordan was asking whether or not Alex Ross used actual models for the facial expressions and things like that. Um, if you look at the, if you just had the uh, comics themselves then you probably wouldn't get it. But if you actually look at the trade paperback for Marvel, it actually has a lot of his uh, designs and works and things like that. And he actually used a lot of uh, like friends of his to do like facial oh, yeah. expressions and yeah. things like that. And the one that really sticks out to me, the Reed Richards one's a good one, but the one that I really like is in the third uh, part of it. Is it the third? Maybe it's the fourth part. Whenever the Gwen, the fourth part, it's the Gwen Stacy one. Um, there's like this panel where Gwen Stacy just has this like look of awe and wonder over. I think it's the Avengers or like right. back. They came back from I guess they were in space or something like that, and they had come back and you and she's like next to the photojournalist and he just like there's this just amazing image of 
her facial expression. Right. And if you flip through towards the back of the book, it actually has like the model that he used for yeah. it. It's like the exact, it's almost the exact same thing. The only thing that's different is the hair. What I like are the scenes when it kind of a background character that you wouldn't think is very important to the story, but as Jordan said with, you know, like the 1940s coffee pot or whatever, there's certain background characters that he used celebrities for and still got the, you know, expressions correct. I mean, that's the impressive part is, you know, who's who's to say he could find an exact photo of uh, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the celebrities. There's like one with Dick Van Dyke and a bunch of like 1960s there celebrities are <laughs> yeah. at the Fantastic Four wedding. But it's like the expressions they even have on their face. It's not like he just found an exact photo of that celebrity at that time. And it's not like he had the celebrity come in. So, I mean, even through his own artistic vision, was able to take a celebrity and still give the subtlety of what that emotion would be in it. And that's something he couldn't just necessarily have one of his friends take a picture for us. So I thought that was cool. Right. I guess the best way to end this segment is, Sam, you're the artist. Our audience is potentially would-be artists. So from this great work, what nugget can you extract from what Alex Ross did and say audience learned from this? Uh, I know we talked about reference and everything, but I'm going to say his use of shadows and light. Um and I, with painting, that that's an obvious. You have to understand shadows and light, or else you're going to totally lose the realism. But man, Alex Ross does some an awesome balance between not going too far with the shadows, not going too far with his highlights, and gets like this perfect blend that that gives it like his own style. One of my favorite pages, though, where I thought he used it perfect is uh, it's during the X Men scene when they're running away from the. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the Sentinels? exact scene. No, I don't think they're running from... It might just be like a band of rednecks, you know, that are telling them, get oh, out of here, you stinking mutant. Yeah, nights. I'm pretty sure that, that yeah. might be the scenario. I haven't read this book in a while. <laughs> but, uh, you did your homework, clearly. But when I, whenever I was younger, I read it a billion times. Um, but there's a scene where the X-Men are like cut off into a back alleyway and the lighting, the only light that you really get is there's a torch that someone's carrying and Cyclops visor and like the red of his visor lights the whole scene. And what's funny is this is Alex Ross using like insane amount of reference. There's actually a, a hidden, uh, a hidden story to that. You, you see like Cyclops hands out and like the red from his visor is like one of the only light sources there are. And the shadow of his hand goes over the crotch area of Jean Grey and that's actually a reference to a painting from way back in, like, the Renaissance age. Oh, yeah, I know what you're saying. Where there, there was a painting, and I'm trying to think it was, like, a Spanish uh, settler or something. I don't remember the specifics of the painting whenever it was done. But you see the shadow of his hand going over, like, the, the Spanish person next to him. And it was to symbolize that this guy had some type of gay relationship with that character. Right. And so in Marvel's, the shadow of Cyclops' hand going over Jean Grey, it's a complete throwback to that painting. Well, that's interesting to study art history and notice that, you know, when you look at those paintings, they work symbolism and stuff like that into it. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, just like you go into a fairy tale and... Uh, you think, and the story is this. And well, no, it's not that. There's a deeper meaning, you know. The the story of the three little pigs means you should, you know, plan for a rainy day kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. There's a deeper meaning. In single pieces of art, there's often a deeper meaning. And that's pretty good for our audience to think about that, you know. Right. But to put it back into our perspective, the actual painting that I was referring to, 
alone had just awesome use of shadows and highlights. And then you throw it into the Marvel's book, how he did that with Cyclops visor and the red coming off. To me, there's just like a perfect example of like using those shadows and highlights. And I mean, he does it in the rest of the book, though, just, just perfect. So if there's anything to learn from that book besides reference, 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 it's not going crazy on your shadows and highlights. Well, that's a good lesson. So I think we'd like to take a break at this point to give you a word from our sponsor. It is audibletrial.com slash showmecomics. What this is going to do for you is give you a free audiobook. Now, you normally think of an audiobook as, meh, I've already read a book, and now I get somebody else to read it for me. <laughs> Not necessarily the case because... Like the Mafia Don who gets uh, <laughs> waited on. Right, because Audible is goes beyond just books. So if you're into books, great. You can get a free book anytime you want. But they also have old-time radio programs. And they have college courses. And the one I'm going to recommend to you right now is a college course brought to you from The Great Courses. So these are, you may have heard me say it before... An Ivy League quality course that you can get for free. So you say, I can't afford to go to Harvard. I can't afford to go to Yale. Well, yes, you can. Because if you can afford $0, <laughs> you can afford to get this course right now. And the one I'm going to recommend to you is based on what we're talking about. Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross both melded together to tell these epic stories in a different way. And they really combine together to be storytellers, wouldn't you say so, Sam? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So what I'm going to tell you right now is a course called The Art of Storytelling from Parents to Professionals. And what that course on Audible does is tell you, hey, this is an oral storyteller and here's how to tell oral stories. And you think, I'm trying to write comic scripts. What do I care about? Telling stories orally, you know, or, yeah, I'm trying to draw comics. I know, you've told me before, Jordan, that I'm a storyteller. Okay, I buy it, but I don't buy that I have to learn it from an oral storyteller. You can go shove it. <laughs> well, in reality, you know, we oral... angry listeners. <laughs> they're very angry. <laughs> oral storytelling is with everything stripped away. So that means an artist and a writer can learn about storytelling from the same source without getting all muddled up in their own medium. Does that make sense to you guys? Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, so they it teaches you the touchstones of drama, suspense, milestones, symbolism, so on and so forth. If you learn it from an oral perspective, you're going to be able to translate that into your medium. And the great thing about this course that I really loved is it's interspersed with the teacher who is a master storyteller will tell her own stories as examples and she tells some fascinating stories so at the very end of it if you haven't learned that much you were still highly entertained so go to audibletrial.com slash showmecomics for your free 30 day trial and you can pick up the art of storytelling from parents to professionals for yourself no charge Ivy League ever education, education. Obviously, I need to go to college, but you can pick it up right now. All right, so transition into storytelling. Let's talk about the work as a whole. 
Tim, what did you think of Marvels? I, uh, and, and I'm going to call it Marvels. <laughs> Because I recently listened to a history of Marvel comics, and like, there's a couple guys that call it Marvel, so I'm going to call it Marvels. Okay, I, uh, I'm still going to call it Marvels. Exactly, but I'm going to call it Marvels. <laughs> there was a character at one time. Captain Marvel was originally. You mean Mar- Captain Marvel? Yes, that's exactly. <laughs> it. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. You don't call it Provel cheese. <laughs> it's Provel. Yeah. Uh, I actually loved Marvels or Marvels. If you're Jordan. Um, I actually liked it. I actually liked this a lot more than I liked The Dark Knight Returns. Like, I think it had a much deeper impact. The thing that really sticks out to me with Marvels is not only is it does it accurately portray like the uh, the period that the individual installments take place in, and like follows this guy pretty much through his entire career from like being a young guy that wants to be a photojournalist for World War II in Europe. All the way to like basically him being an old man and seeing how things have changed in like his own profession, his own life, and that kind of thing. But the the thing that really stands out is when you were reading comics, you're uh, you're trying to identify with the hero. Uh, you're like, man, what if I was Spider Man and I could climb walls? What if I was Captain America and I was fast and strong and blah blah blah? It's um, so when you're reading it, you're marveling at the characters and uh, marveling, marveling at the characters and uh, like the first issue of Spider-Man's amazing fantasies. And that's what uh, that's what you think about with the comic book characters. You're like, these are these are fantasy characters that uh, fill you with wonder and awe and things like that. But in Marvel's, when it starts out, you're seeing through the eyes of real not real people but realistic people where the first time they see the original human torch and the submariner it's fear they're uh they're freaking out it's like their entire world their entire world is upside down <laughs> and it changes everything it changes it did and it did it changed everything and uh you uh everybody's freaking out about this like robot that can that lights on fire if he's exposed to oxygen and his battle with the Submariner tearing up like the world. And then it just kind of, it goes from there. I mean, like the, the whole storytelling, like, and the, the, the human aspect of a world where with superheroes is amazing. All right, Sam. Yeah. No, Tim hit it right on the head. That's whenever I read that, you know, the thing that got me was, you know, as a kid, I, I read, you know, Galactus coming down to eat the planet and, and saw it through the Fantastic Four's eyes. I know how the Fantastic Four reacted to that. And obviously I read the, the Gwen Stacy storyline and I knew how Spider-Man experienced that. But this was the first time in a comic book where you got to see it from the average New York citizen's eyes. It's kind of like, you know, if we create this to sports, you know, like baseball is if you're a pro athlete, you go out on the diamond and you hit 300-foot, 400-foot home runs. You steal bases. You throw 90-mile-an-hour fastballs. It's not a big deal. You're mm-hmm. around it all the time. You've been doing it your whole life. You're around other professionals that do it. That's not a big deal. And, yeah, I mean, it's a huge thing when they you know, win a championship or hit a home run. But it's, they do it all the time. But when you go and you ask somebody sitting in the stands, you know, tell me about that night that Mark McGuire hit the 60-second home run. 
I know I was there. To me, it was like, oh man, this thing was a monster shot. I could hear it, you know, 700 feet away. The city of St. Louis roared. It's a much bigger deal to the spectator. And that was cool about Marvels is you got to see what the what the spectators to to these superheroes. You know, whenever this crazy omnipotent being shows up that's going to eat the city, you know. We already saw that through the Fantastic Four's eyes, but for the first time you get to see it through the average everyday citizen's eyes of like how freaked out they were, how they responded. You know, like at the time we were still a pretty conservative country and here's people walking around with signs saying, it's the end of the world. The end of the world is coming. Repent. You know, it's like you didn't see that in the original comic books because you only saw it through the Fantastic Four's eyes. But now you're seeing how actual people would respond when this stuff's happening. It's kind of like the movie Cloverfield. Have you you guys ever seen that movie? I know what it is, but I didn't see it. All right, so the whole concept of Cloverfield is basically a Godzilla movie. The monster's not called Godzilla, but it's Godzilla. In the Godzilla movies, you see Godzilla trashing the city, and you see... Like, maybe the Department of Defense or whatever the Japanese military is saying, Oh my god, this is crazy. What are we going to do to stop him? And it's all, like, in bunkers and, you know, decisions being made by generals and blah, 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 blah. In Cloverfield, what it was was, Hey, I'm at a party and... What's that in the dis... A building just fell down? Oh my god. Oh my god. You know, and they were like, The city is falling... Hey, just get down. Just get to shelter right now. We don't know what's going on. Get down. All right, All right get down to the subway. The subway is going dark. What? It, what the heck is that thing? A mon- and you know, a monster just jumps forward, and the next thing you know, they're experiencing this whole Godzilla attack from what in the old Godzilla movies you would look at like an ant running down the right. streets of Tokyo. You know, right. and you're like, wow, that's a way different way to look at it. So. I kind of think that's what we got here. Yeah, you get to see real people who deal with the consequences of what these superheroes are doing. And in the comic books, you never really get to see the consequences of the actions of their battles or whatnot. Or like, uh, you know, in the comic books at the time, yeah, they had civil rights issues and they did that. But that wasn't what sold the book. People only cared about, let's see the superheroes. And Marvel's, I like uh, when they get to the mutant part where the, the two mutant girls are hiding in the house. And the people are coming after him. And you get to actually see, this is why people were freaked out by the mutants. This is why they were scared of them. Right. And uh, like Tim said, there's just that human element of where you get to see it from the spectator's eyes. That that really brought it to me from Marvels. And when you told me originally about this work, that highly intrigued me. I'm like, that sounds like a great high concept, you know? Now I'm going to turn this into the Roman Colosseum. All right. And one, Sam, you're going to have the trident. Tim, you're going to have the net, okay. and I'm going to have the pee running down my leg <laughs> because I'm facing you two because I'm going to say, I thought it stunk <laughs> story-wise. Like, I had a real hard time. It felt like homework. Right. Really? Like, I had to keep setting it down and going, okay, I read that part. Mm. Let me go take a break. Let me go barbecue a turkey. All right, I'm going to come back. I'm going to read another chapter. Right. And not that I thought everything was bad. That's not what I'm saying. I just thought that as a whole, here's the high level I'm going to give you before I get into that. Because I'm supposed to be the writer, right? And not that I can go to toe-to-toe with Kurt Busiek because I'm sure he's a much better writer than I am. But I'm just going to give you my naked, honest opinion. Um, 
the high level view of this, if I, when I think about a great work, I kind of think about it transcending the world of comics, right? Mm -hmm. Like it being great on its own merit. I feel like if I handed this to someone with no prior knowledge of not just comics, but the Marvel universe, it's unreadable. Right. What do you guys think of that? Go that ahead. Was, throw that your was, throw your net. Throw that your, was, thrust that was, your trident. That was actually going to be my critique of the book. Is it's like everything I've said so far for the positives had to do with my reference of a little kid reading all these stories before. Right. So if you come in as someone, like you said, a great work should be able to be picked up by somebody that doesn't even like comic books and they get into it, they read it, they love it. With Marvels, yeah, it's great you get to see you know their point of view of Galactus and Gwen Stacy. But if you have no point of reference for all these times. It's not going to make any sense. <laughs> right. Like, I scribbled down for an example next to my comment. is like, Peter Parker. So, the main uh, character is some unknown photojournalist that you, you don't know outside of the Marvel Universe. So, which right. is great. He comes in, and he's having this argument with J. Jonah Jameson. And Peter Parker comes in. And the guy looks at him, and he's like, Peter Parker. What a piece of garbage, you know. All he does is give these anti-Spider-Man photos, blah, blah, blah. And you, as the Marvel reader, go, that's great, because that's actually right. Spider-Man! Yeah, you, you already know their backstory. You know that? Oh, my God. This guy's missing the big picture. Oh, if he only knew, that'd be great. If I didn't know the Marvel Universe, I'd be like, right. why <laughs> is this walk-on character who we never hear about again... What was the point of that? Mm, I actually thought of that. After I suggested the book, I was thinking, I was like, you know, Jordan doesn't quite have the the back history of comic books that, that Tim and I do. And I'm thinking about it. I'm like, you know, you know to us, you know, especially to, as me, someone who grew up on Marvel Comics, Phil Sheldon helps, you know, flow the story so that it's like all these yeah, different events tie, yeah, the they tie together neatly in that. But to a person that doesn't know all those, it seems like a bunch of just random you know things just thrown in like oh here this happens and then there's these mutants being persecuted now there's this guy trying to eat the city and now there's this girl being captured by the green yeah Goblin. another part i was gonna it's say like a about bunch that. of inside jokes yeah it's, it is i what i would thought of exactly what popped in my mind when i was reading it it's a basket full of easter eggs right you know it's right. that thing in the movie oh my gosh i can't believe that cameo appearance just walked across the screen that's great that's an easter egg the entire thing was a basket full of Easter eggs. I mean, the Galactus fight, okay? In the Galactus fight, you had a... It was splash page. And this is good technique-wise for our audience to listen to. It was a single splash page of the fight with Galactus. And you're like, wow, something's something's going on. They're fighting. And then it would be followed by a page broken into panels of the photojournalist character going... Oh my, this is crazy, blah, 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 blah. And then you would turn the page and there would be another splash page of like the same fight, but something had changed, but you didn't know what changed right. because in between, all you saw was this photojournalist going, oh no. And so I remember flipping through like 10 pages of Galactus fight and not knowing what the heck happened in the Galactus fight? Uh, well, the best part is he hands him the ultimate nullifier and he leaves. I got to imagine to you it's like, 
What? What kind of resolution is <laughs> right. that? And I mean, I did know. Like, I have more backstory than the normal person. But I'm thinking a normal person, like, <laughs> I couldn't hand this to anybody that didn't know anything about the Marvel right. Universe. They would think this is... This would drive them away from comics for another five to ten right. years to, if to, I gave this to them. To Kurt Busiek's credit, though, uh, you got to realize in the context of the, when that comic book was made, nobody else was reading comic books. Like Marvel came in assuming, look, the only person that's going to pick this up is somebody that reads Marvel comics. They weren't trying to reach anybody else. And at that time, unfortunately, most people that read comic books were comic book fans. You weren't really going to have anybody else pick it up to figure it out. But to his credit, I don't think he thought, all right, I'm going to write something that just transcends oh, no, no, all no. mediums. And, I, and you're I'm right. Not... I, I thought about that <laughs> after I suggested it. I don't know. Like, cause I'm, not a, I'm not a Fantastic Four fan, so I didn't know what the resolution of the story was. But for me, it's not about what superheroes are doing. So, like, ultimately, what happens with Galactus isn't important. It's the aftermath of how, like, the human reaction of, well, now we're going to blame the Fantastic Four for this. It's like how, how fickle humans as a society right. is and things like that. Because I, I don't can... think, I mean, I understand your point, but I, like, I don't think you could give the Dark, like, the last one we did was the Dark Knight Returns. I don't think you'd give the Dark Knight Returns to somebody who isn't a Batman fan. And have them care about. Oh, this. I know. Well, you could, I, I know just because I've done it. I've had many people that aren't comic book fans read that, and they're like, "Man, that was awesome." But again, even though that wasn't the thing at the time, Frank Miller's ego was like, "You know what? I'm going to write something that everybody. This is going to seem like a damn movie. Anybody yeah. can pick it up and see it." But I'm glad but, you brought that up, Tim, because I actually hit my high points of the non-comic book audience. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not anti-Kurt Busiek. He's way more talented and way more successful than I am. But what I want to try to do is highlight some problems I had so that maybe our audience can say, I see the root of that problem, and I don't want to repeat that in my own work. So let's go down to a level of, I'm a super Marvel fanboy. What other problems do I have with the story? Because like I said, I've read the history of Marvel Comics, so I... I had the Namor Human Torch buy-in, you know, all that stuff. I, Even though I wasn't, you know, a comics fan since I was four years old, I still had a certain amount of buy-in. Mm-hmm. Let's go to uh, the very beginning of the book. The first thing I saw with this character was, oh, he's talking to J. Jonah Jameson. That's interesting. Cool Easter egg, you know. And then the first thing I thought was, there's, <laughs> there's no suspense at all. All right. You know, like... This guy's running around. The suspense is still left on the superheroes. There's no suspense with the photojournalist character. He's just going to do whatever the superheroes do. You know, he's going to run around town and he's going to take pictures and he's going to report on what's... Why is there... There's no suspense there. Right. And again, that comes from them just automatically... You know, determining that the audience knows the history of Marvel. Because for me, I'm reading it going, all right, I know what's about to happen next. I know this right. time period. Yeah. Of Mar-. And like you said, that's that's not a good thing for them to assume that everybody is that detailed. No, that. And, and suspense is drama, and right. drama is suspense, and that's important to storytelling. You but know? There, there is some in the story, but you have to care about the character of the photojournalist. Cause there's I'm the- so glad you said that. <laughs> because that's you don't my next care about point. the photojournalist. I don't care one whit about that photojournalist. He is completely milk toast. 
until the point where he says to his fiance or the girl that he likes, he's like, you know, these Marvels, <laughs> they're they're just so powerful. I seem insignificant, and I'm gonna have to break off our engagement because I just feel insignificant next to them. All right, first first piece of drama, okay. And yes, that's dramatic. It's like, ooh, what's going to happen between his fiance and him? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm like, what a wimp. I don't care. Suddenly, I care about the fiance. Let's follow. She should be the main character because she <laughs> just finally escaped the clutches of this wimp. Let's see her development, you know? Like, if you're trying to make a sympathetic character. This photojournalist up to that point is like nothing, nothing, nothing. Hate him. <laughs> well, I wonder. I wonder if that kind of mentality of the character is also part of the time that that story takes place in. Because I mean, if we if we were to yeah, like nobody here would say that, but I mean, at the time it was more like it's a man's duty to oh, be able to defend his family and, blah, 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 and stuff like that. But uh. We're a lot more gender neutral nowadays. No, I see where you're coming from. But it didn't build any sort of caring in me as a reader. You know, whether I read it, (laughs) whether I read it five minutes after 1945 or I read it 500 (laughs) years after 1945. I think you should get a time machine. Go back to 1945. Read it (laughs) again. If that's a prerequisite to enjoy this story, it's not a great world. Well, here's kind of a funny thing, and this is my insane Marvel fanboy knowledge coming into play. Again, this is part of Marvel saying, well, we get it that everyone's in on the inside jokes. Phil Sheldon is actually a character that goes back a long time through Marvel history and uh like Lane Closures I was going like Robert Pinnacle. Robert there's a character in the Hafu stories that you've all not met yet you're going to you're going to be introduced to him in the second book he's a reporter named Robert Pinnacle and way back in the first attempt of the book you've heard us talk about before that we did when we were kids uh, we had this character, Robert Pinnacle. He was just an inside joke. He was like one of these like you know 1920s news reporters with the press hat on. And I tried to hide him in the background of as many scenes as I could. I thought it would be funny, like, where's Waldo? Like, ooh, see if you can spot Robert Pinnacle. Yeah, like he's actually been there through the whole story and nobody knows it. Phil Sheldon throughout the history of the Marvel Universe has had appearances like that. Nice. Before he was a character in the Marvel stories. In fact, one of the scenes in Marvel's, it's uh, – I don't remember which book of the series it was. It's the one with Gwen Stacy, though. Right after she, you know, <laughs> meets her end, you see, like, it's a, there's a panel where you see behind Spider-Man, and he's holding her, and there's a bunch of cops and, like, spectators that are, like, looking at him, like, in fear. Mm-hmm. And you see Phil Sheldon kind of off to the side. If you pick up the issue of Amazing Spider-Man back in the 1960s and look at that panel, that is drawn, like... I'm talking person per person. Phil Sheldon is actually in that panel right. in the 1960s comic book. <laughs> looks so you're just, saying, out of the basket of Easter eggs, he's the most chocolatey, yes. creamiest yes. Easter egg you could bite into. There's but been, he's still an Easter egg. There's been Marvel comic books like in the past, way before Marvels were written, where you'd see like a newspaper and it would be a... Uh, photo of a character and it's like photo credit phil sheldon (laughs) (laughs) but i'm glad i'm actually glad you brought up the gwen stacy part because i thought this was a part that kurt busiek did wonderfully so the basically the whole uh latter 25 percent of the miniseries was about gwen stacy 
And what it starts out as is the photojournalist who is now trying to, he's decided and he's grown through the the story that he wants to vindicate the superheroes because society doesn't give them a fair shake. And he's like, you know what? One thing I can do that I can actually do is vindicate Spider-Man because I don't think that he killed who? Uh, Captain Stacy. Gwen Stacy's father. Yeah, Captain Stacy, who is a cop, who happens to be Gwen Stacy's father. Now, I'm sitting there and I'm like, I already know through my comic history how Gwen Stacy dies. Not exciting, right? Mm-hmm. But what I don't know is the relationship that develops between the photojournalist and Gwen Stacy before she dies and how that will affect the photojournalist. So suddenly I found myself after repeatedly reading 10 pages, putting it down, reading 10 pages, putting it down, reading 10 pages, putting it down. I got to that last 25% and I'm like, Hey, I'm intrigued. And I found myself actually in a story, not like, man, I can't put it down, but I felt the way you should feel through a whole story. As in, you want to know what happens next. And that part, I thought, was very well done. The Gwen Stacy part. You guys, uh, what did you guys think of that part? I agree. I, I think that's the... I think that's probably the strongest part right. of the well, entire... Right, well, and I think he just really awesome took the essence of the Gwen Stacy character. And that is why that was such like a pivotal moment in the Marvel Universe and why that was such a part of the Marvel story was... Gwen Stacy was a character that purposely was written for fanboys to fall in love with. They're like, we understand why Peter Parker wants to be with this girl, even over Mary Jane. We understand what he loves about this Gwen Stacy character. And Stanley, he talks about this a lot, you know, where it's like they wanted you to fall in love with Gwen Stacy and see all the attributes of that character so that whenever they killed her off, it impacted you even more. And I think Busick did a great job of, like, you know, seeing that through Phil Sheldon's eyes. Now that though yeah, he gave be- Phil Sheldon a reason to care exactly what happened to Gwen exactly. Stacy. You know, if he did the same thing he did with the Galactus fight and the Submariner and blah blah blah, you would have just been like, you know, okay, I'm looking, I'm looking. Okay, Gwen Stacy died just like I thought she would. But instead, he made those two characters meet up in a way that could have happened behind the scenes. You know. Which, speaking of that, I have a little side rant that I'll try not to take too long on. No, go ahead. Even though you're extending us. Some- <laughs> I talk well. I talk a lot of crap on DC on these podcasts, and I act like Marvel's the greatest thing. But Marvel did something a few years ago that is beyond anything DC's ever done on the stupid meter. And I just wanted to bring it to your attention because you don't read a lot of modern books. Is this a clone? Well, no. The, <laughs> okay. It would have been way better if it was a clone. So Gwen Stacy, everything you see through Phil Sheldon's eyes, you get the character. You understand why Peter Parker wanted. It was going to marry this girl. Like that. Peter Parker's plan was to marry Gwen Stacy, and then she died, and it you know messed him up. So a few years ago, Marvel gets the great idea to go back and retcon and say that. Uh, what does retcon mean for our audience that doesn't know? Uh, basically, you take continuity and and go back and change it. And you're just like, ah, we've decided to change the continuity quite so a bit. retroactive continuity. Exactly. So uh, the storyline they came up with was uh, in, the, in the original comics, Gwen Stacy goes off on a trip to Europe right before she dies. 
She has, she needs time oh, to think about something. Yeah. She goes off to Europe, and in the comic books, you don't see her for like a little bit of time. And they were doing this because they knew they were going to build up to killing her off. So whenever they bring her back, you know, it's like yes, she's Gwen a Stacy's- super huge communist. No, and she, all- she, oh, she went to <laughs> sorry, <laughs> she went to Europe like for college, and then she comes back, and then her and Peter are going to get together, and then she winds up getting off in the stories. So a few years ago, Marvel decides, ah, uh, you know what. That's too good. Let's make things as dumb as we can. <laughs> that's, sure that's exactly what they said in the meeting, too. Not, actually, you're probably not far off. They up. go back because they had already just absolutely just thrashed Spider-Man's universe as it was. So now they make it that apparently when Gwen Stacy went to Europe, she ran into Norman Osborn, who was the, the original Green Goblin. She runs into Norman Osborn, has an affair, gets pregnant by him. Oh, my god! Gives gosh. birth to twins. Somehow she does all this. This sounds like DC Comics. Somehow she does all this in the few months that she was gone in real Spider-Man history. She gives birth to twins. And Norman in a couple Osborn, Norman Osborn <laughs> somehow like, he kidnaps the twins and then gives them this, like, super formula that makes them age to where they're adults. And Infamil? then they fight Spider-Man. <laughs> It is the most ridiculous thing. And I'm like, they took the character, though, who it's like, this is the reason why Phil Sheldon, you know, fell in love with Gwen Stacy in the way he did. And the reason that Peter Parker fell in love with Gwen Stacy. she's simple and innocent. Yeah, she's such an innocent character. And then Marvel decided, eh, screw it. No way, Studio 51. Which to me might be the worst (laughs) thing to ever happen in a comic book ever. And that's on Marvel's hands and not DC. So there's one one of my times where I'm going to... Talk crap on Marvel and not well, and there's there's one more day too. I'm glad you had <laughs> yeah. the aside, but uh, so we talked a lot about fanboy buy-in. Like, if you're a fanboy, you had a certain amount of buy-in. I would like to close this out with a couple other things that I found. Okay, that you cannot defend as a Marvel fan, sure, or a DC fan, or a Man Man fan. <laughs> you <laughs> cannot, you turn of Man Man <laughs> or Dog Man fan. Oh. You cannot defend this. All right, was a couple other things. Again, sorry, Kurt Busiek. I know I'm trying to write comics. If we ever run into each other at Comic-Con, you can belittle me and tell me how unprofessional and that I've never been published by Marvel, blah, 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 blah. But I still found some errors in your work, sir. So here they are. All right. (laughs) One of them is... Oh, my goodness. This is so ridiculous. You've got notes all over the place. Yeah. So uh, you're reading in the first part of the story, and this photojournalist character is like, I want to go to World War II because that's where the action is. Blah, 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 blah. And it's like, okay, yeah, man, that's a motivation for the character. Good job. Well done. I'm in. And I'm reading, and then and then the Marvels <laughs> pop up in the city and finally, the head of, you know, whatever paper or business that he's working for says, Hey, kid, it's your chance. Time to go over to the, you know, photograph our fighting men over in Europe. And he's like, No, thanks, Joe. I'm staying over here because I'm going to photograph the Marvels. And it's like, Oh, man, wow, he's really changed. Because he decided to never go to Europe. He decided to stay... And that's good. That's good storytelling because it's like the Marvels made an impact on his life. Then later, when he's conflicted with the mutant question and he has a little mutant girl in his basement, it cuts to a flashback where, you know, like all the suburban guys are running through his 
neighborhood saying, we want the mutants. And he's got a mutant girl hidden in his basement. And he says, oh, man. And then it flashes back in his mind. And he remembers when he was in Europe and he saw the liberation of Auschwitz and all those people in the concentration camp. And it shows him with a big flashbulb taking pictures. And it's like, dude, you never went to Europe. <laughs> that was a major plot point that right. you said you're never going to Europe. And then you have another major plot point that says, man, if not for my experience in Europe, I would <laughs> turn I, uh, this girl over. Can I see that issue? Because I think he does go to Europe. No, he doesn't. Trust me. I double checked. Because he's like writing letters. You to, can, he's writing letters to his wife. No, if you can point. find it, go for it. Okay. But I double checked. He distinctly said, "I'm not going to Europe." And if you can find it, that's fine. But obviously, it wasn't big enough for me to realize <laughs> that he didn't go to Europe. Like it. It was probably like Busiek realized later on. He's like. Oh, crap. I better go back into the story and have Alex Ross paint one panel. <laughs> yeah. it uh, Sheldon hurries up and flies So, over. again, if he is – all right, here. What does it say here? This, this whole uh, thing here. It's basically establishing that he's in Germany. And nobody has any idea what the future is going to bring. It's right after, like, yeah, right after the wedding he goes to Germany. Well, uh, again, that's two pages, and obviously I missed it pretty soon because I do remember this next page – with the Marvels descending on like a a German base, but I don't know. It just seemed like those story beats. I really remembered him saying, "I'm not going to Europe," and then there's like this tag at the end that, like, it's not even two pages. Like the top panel is him getting married, yeah, and then there's a panel with him in a lantern. Confusing. He's actually becoming the Green Lantern. <laughs> <laughs> Confusing is all I'm trying to say. I, okay? okay. So I felt like it was, for two big story moments, it was pretty pry barred in there. You know what I'm saying? Well, the, the I mean, the one thing I'll, we'll get, I'll definitely give you is that, yeah, I'm not going to go to the, I'm not, I'm not going to take pictures in the war because I'm going to deal with the Marvels. Well, the Marvels are in the war, so I'm going to the war. He goes anyway. So yeah, yeah. Like, what's the point of. It was pretty, uh, it, it was thin, let's say it that way. Yeah. It, it was pretty thin. All right, this next point you're not going to be able to get me on, okay. <laughs> which is fine. Again, it's all based on reader experience, so that's, I'm glad you were able to point that out to me for the podcast, but still, when I read it, I was like, what? I can see, if, yeah, if you're like only reading a few pages at a time and putting it down, I can see how you could gloss over that. Yeah, which is exactly what happened, but um, to be major plot points... That should have had a little bit more foreshadowing, which, by the way, from a writer standpoint, kind of a general rule for foreshadowing is you should have at least three times where it happens. So, you know, not just in defense of myself, but to you, dear listener, we had a bit of foreshadowing that said you're not going to Europe. Hmm. A big point. Then we had a teeny bit of foreshadowing that said you're in Europe. <laughs> Then we had a major plot point that said, hey, remember, based on your experience when you were in Europe? So it's almost as if those two other foreshadowing points canceled each other out. And if the rule is three, man, you missed the mark big time. And you guys know what I mean about foreshadowing? Mm -hmm. It's like, let's say you're making a movie and some guy is, you know, beset on all sides by attackers with baseball bats. You know, and this guy's supposed to be like a peacenik, 
and the baseball bat guys are coming at him. And then all of a sudden, he pulls a gun out of his jacket and blows them all away. And you're like, what's a peacenik doing with a gun? That doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. So what you do as a storyteller is you go back and you go back to his grandfather dying. And his grandfather, the only thing he wants to do is leave him his World War II revolver. And the guy saying, okay, Gramps, you know, I'm not really into violence, but okay, I'll take your World War II revolver. few scenes later, there's a jiggle at his basement or his uh, downstairs door. And he's like, is somebody trying to break in my house? He kind of looks around and he doesn't know what to do. And he remembers all of a sudden in the top of his closet, he has his grandpa's World War II revolver. So he clutches it. And he runs down the stairs, but the person that was trying to get in runs away. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, so he goes back. And then later on in the story, he feels like his life is in danger. And even though he's not a violent person, it would make him feel better to put his grandpa's revolver in his pocket. So now when you get to that scene with the guys with the baseball bat, you're like, <gasps> and he whips out his grandpa's revolver and you feel satisfied. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Whereas take all those other scenes I just described out where he's just a peacenik and then he blows all these dudes away. You're like, that doesn't fit right. at all. Mm -hmm. That's how I felt in Marvels. You know, I was like, he said all this stuff. And then he said this other stuff happened. It didn't fit. There was not enough foreshadowing for me. But let's take that one off the plate and let's put a different one on. The other thing that he does is he's hugely anti-mutant. Do you guys remember that? Mm -hmm. Like at the beginning? Do yeah. you agree, Sam? Mm -hmm. Hugely anti-mutant at the same time being pro-Marvel. But so, so is society in general. Yeah, so, so is society in general. Meaning he's pro-Avengers, he's pro-Fantastic Four, but he's anti-X-Men. Do you guys all agree? Yes. That that happens in the comic? Yep. Yeah. Okay, there's an incident where he gets so whipped up in an anti-mutant fervor mm -hmm. that he throws a stone at the mutants. And he's kind of conflicted over throwing the stone, but he still does it. And then in the next page, he's like, and then I went to the wonderful Fantastic Four wedding with, you know... What's her name, Zara? Sue. Sue Storm. Sue Storm and Reed Richards, you know? So I go to the wedding and, yeah, this is how it's supposed to be. Not mutants. And who's there in the pews? Quicksilver and Scarlet oh, yeah. Witch. <laughs> and what are Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch? Avengers. But yes, mutants. But what else? Well, to be fair, Submariner's a mutant as well. And what... Oh, well, that just enhances my point, but, so thank you. But I guess nobody knows that. I don't even. Maybe it's not even established. And I maybe I don't Stan know. They're Lee's Magneto's children, and Magneto's a pretty big player in the whole that? mutant thing. Yeah, I th I, I'm not sure if it if they're trying to stick to Marvel history and continuity in real time. I don't know that if whenever Quicksilver and uh, Scarlet Witch debuted with Avengers that they were considered mutants yet. I don't think they had actually connected them in with the X Men or anything. But that's another thing that it's like. But you're you right. Have you have to be. You would have real to know all that backstory. Student. Yeah. It, well, you like you just said, you're not even sure, right. and you're a pretty big right. Marvel fan. 
if you're not even sure, you got to be a scholar yeah. just to make the story work. No, you're absolutely correct. I think that, and I don't think it was Busiek saying, you know what, let's take their story writing playbook and throw it out the window. I think his biggest problem is that he kind of got handcuffed to Marvel saying, look, we want you to take 150 pages and tell the entire history of Marvel Universe. So it almost reads as one big montage. Right. You know, so he didn't really have time to sit and go, well, let's take more than three panels to describe him going to Germany or this. I could see where like just an average reader picking it up that doesn't have the comic book knowledge going, this is just arbitrary things happening. It just it is. It's one big montage where people like me that came were like, oh, I know all this history. I can't wait for this to happen. But right. outside of people like me, it could be insanely confusing. So when we come to the an- end of analyzing this great work, and the reason I decided to put myself on the you know, a shooting range when it comes to objecting about some of these things is the lesson that I think you can glean, other than the art lessons we already talked about, was if you're writing something, especially if it feels niche, share it with more people. Because the broader audience, you like, let's say Kurt Busiek would have shared this with a hugely outside the Marvel offices audience, and he had got this feedback. He doesn't necessarily change everything, but maybe he tweaks a thing or two that even makes it better for the Marvel audience. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if I write a comic book script and I give it to Sam and Tim. These are the guys that I've been talking about my comic book idea with for the last six months. So when they read it, they're going to bring all this backlog of information into the reading process subconsciously and say, oh, man, you really you really nailed it. You know, I really saw where you were going with this. The next step I want to do is take that script and give it to somebody who maybe doesn't even care about comics. Or maybe doesn't even read fiction and say, hey, can you just look at this and just tell me what you think, you know? So maybe they will be lost on some of those comic book parts, but maybe they'll catch an easy red flag like, how did he uh, go to Europe when he said he wasn't going to Europe? Well, right here. See these eight panels where I said he ended up going to Europe? Um, no, actually, that was just a little splash in the pond, and I missed that. Okay, not your fault as a reader, not my fault as a writer, but I know what I gotta do in the future is, I gotta add a scene or two that talks about him actually going to the war. Which could be pretty darn fun, talking about him in the war, you know, that'd be highly dramatic. But that's just one example, you know what I mean? Or somebody who's semi-versed on Marvel says... Aren't these two mutants? You know what? Yeah, they are. And you know what? I think this Avengers Fantastic Four (laughs) wedding works as well with those two not in the panel. So I don't necessarily need them. Or or whatever. Do you guys feel where I'm coming from? No, you're definitely right on with that advice. But I think to go a step further is be wary of who you're showing it to. You know, if you're showing it to your mom, that's not the best person to get critique from. And the reason I say that is Marvel is, you know, very well known for their editors. Uh, Kurt Busiek had to show that to an editor before it got through. And 
Who's to say Buzik didn't have a long backstory? He didn't have oh, all right. these. Yeah, this is, I guess it's me just trying to define, def- defend Buzik as a professional writer. But who's to say it wasn't the editor that he went to that said, you know what? Take all that crap out. These 12-year-old Marvel fanboys don't need all that. Make this more simple. And he might so have, it's, too, because he might have looked the, at painting. And they were known for having Art, notorious, you know? horrible editors back in those <laughs> days. So it could have been the person making the decision of, no, take that much out. Or like in the case of Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, Music probably didn't even write who was going to be in the background. Alex Ross probably took it upon himself mm-hmm. that in addition to Dick Van Dyke, let's throw Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch in there. And again, a bad editor said, that's awesome, and just let it go and didn't actually think about or it. Or what I was going to say, the editor might have said, hey, this book is for those fans that always wanted to see their line art as paintings. Right. They're the guys that have mm-hmm. been reading Marvel, Marvel for 20 years. So... This is only for them, right? If that was editor's choice, whatever, you know. But the point is on both the artist and the writer is saying, know your audience. You know, Mm -hmm. if I, Jordan, the guy that doesn't have a lot of baggage from Marvel, was not the audience, fine. But if the audience is supposed to be a broader range, shop it around to a broader range. Mm -hmm. Don't just show it to the Marvel editor. Don't just show it to the Marvel. I've read your work all the time, artist, you know, think about who you want eyes on as, as far as alpha readers, beta readers, so on and so forth. Oh, yeah. So anyway, I think we've gone way over because I'm butthurt about this comic. <laughs> so on behalf well, of... I, I think that the last thing to say about that is it's kind of, to me, I look at it like this. If, if Alex Ross hadn't done these beautiful illustrations in Marvels, would I have gave a crap about it? Probably not. <laughs> and that's exactly <laughs> what I thought. If it was I just a typically line art drawn book of the same era, I probably wouldn't have cared. Well, I'm too much sold. About I hate this graphic novel. <laughs> Which is exactly why, if you're an artist, use this as a big how to. Yes, yes. If you're a writer, maybe <laughs> not. All right, on behalf of myself, Jordan, and Sam, we're Show Me Comics, wishing you the best in your creative Marvels. And if you want to find out words that you can tear apart and throw in my face like shrapnel from a grenade, go to showmecomics.com, and that's comics with a CS, because we think we know how to spell. And if you haven't checked out the whole purpose of what we're here for, and that's our graphic novel, Hafu, purchase your copy right now. It's only $9.99 plus shipping and handling, and you can get your copy at www.showmecomics.com slash Hafu, and like us on Facebook, that's facebook.com slash Hafu Graphic Novel, and follow us on Twitter at Show Me Comics. I really thought the artwork was great.